This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about corporate agency dynamics. So as you know, April and I come from the opposite side of the proverbial marketing tracks. I grew up at P&G and April has several agencies, including Landor, Interbrand, Curiosity, and others. But for the record, we've never worked together. But as you guys have heard us talk about before, we bonded on similar experiences working on corporate and agency projects. And what we discovered was that the best marketing work came from the most functional teams. But notice I didn't say that the teams who liked each other the most or got along the best, <laughs> which is good because corporate agency relationships can be some of the most divisive. And not necessarily on the surface, but it's the swirl below the surface. It's kind of like the duck who's like, looks like he's gliding on the surface, but his feet are like moving like frantically underneath <laughs> the surface. Yeah, that's kind of like corporate agency relationships. And I know you all who are in these relationships know exactly what I'm talking about. So let me give a little scenario, and April's going to play along with me here on this scenario, because I'm sure you guys are all familiar with this scenario who are in these relationships. So this is a scenario for when the agency presents work for the first time, okay? So first, the agency takes about 30 minutes to set up the work in an attempt to head, head off any caveats, considerations, objections, or naysaying from the corporate team. So 30 minutes set up. And then the corporate team pretends to be listening and considering all of the work, but they're either texting each other back and forth, which is really awesome when you're in the room with them, or <laughs> they put you on mute and they're outwardly talking, not listening to what's being said by the agency, but already judging the work before we've had a chance to finish. Mm-hmm. But then once the work has been presented, which always takes longer than scheduled because then the agency has to elaborate to cover up any caveats that they miss in the intro... The corporate team then gives their very vague feedback. So it's not to insult or discourage the agency team, but what the corporate team really wants to say is, we don't like any of this, try again. Which then puts us in an awesome swirl because depending on your role in the agency, you hear different things. So a creative might hear, oh, that went great. We just have to make tweaks versus the strategist is like, oh, my gosh, that went completely miserable. We have to start over versus the client account person is kind of somewhere in the middle. And so we waste our time going back, arguing over what the right solution is and what really happened in that room. <laughs> So fast forward to the third round of work where the agency's team still hasn't nailed it. Now even isn't even sure what the brief is because the feedback has taken them in circles. And the corporate team is thinking, why can't we get good work from the agency? And then everyone just decides, well, maybe we just need a team building to get to know each other better. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. So we we laugh. We can laugh now about it, I yeah. guess. Not but, then. <laughs> but we both have this through this so many times um, that, you know, it, it, it becomes like it is actually like thematically like that. And if you haven't experienced it yet, as your business grows and you start sourcing agencies to do work, you will. I, I guarantee you will. So it's good to be prepared. What April and I understand from our combined 35 years of experience is that functional teams actually exhibit specific characteristics and practice certain behaviors that contribute to their ability to produce outstanding work on a consistent basis. And today we're going to talk about these characteristics and practices of highly functional corporate agency teams. 
And in fact, what you will hear also applies to internal multifunctional teams as well, or teams that are a blend of multiple disciplines like R&D, marketing, sales, finance. I mean, me and April participated on many of these teams. So it, this is something that's going to extend very broadly, but we're going to kind of keep it on the corporate agency uh, purview because it's one that that really dramatizes this the most. So with that, let's get started on the four ways to create a highly functional corporate agency team. Okay, the first one, there is a shared common goal which trumps ego. And this one is super hard because within a traditional corporate agency environment, you are judged and compensated by your contributions individually. So human nature naturally creates a mindset where I need to demonstrate my intelligence in order to shine or outshine or rise above. I need to justify my existence to deserve a raise, promotion, accolades. Within a functional team, the common goal of generating impact is the motivation. This is because the reward comes from the entire team succeeding in a far bigger and better way than any individual can do on their own. So with the common goal being the North Star, the filter for every choice, belief, grievance, you name it, whatever the, the, a team member brings it, it brings to you, is that common goal. So you then you can evaluate all of that against the common goal. And, that, and then it becomes, it says it not about me and furthering my pursuits, it becomes how do you further the group's pursuits? And many of you guys are probably shaking your head at me right now, and you're like, yeah, I'm, you're you're crazy, and you grew up 20 years at P&G, and that's what you got from me. But really, and I'll be honest, sometimes we didn't do it the best at P&G, but what I can tell you when it does work well is there is a built-in motivation. And the built-in motivation is you have to set the goal in a way that is bigger than any one person can achieve on their own. And then you have to set the reward against the team delivering that. So all individual recognition is based on where the team can deliver that goal. Then you present it to the team in such a way that they understand that they're all working together in order to deliver this impact. And then what that impact is going to have on your customer, the industry, the business, the company. And this belief in accomplishing something bigger than oneself is actually a very big motivator for most people. And if that isn't enough, then it's just the fact that your personal recognition is intrinsically tied to the team's success that becomes a motivation. And probably one of the most functional teams I have been on is the one that I was on to deliver the Thai Super Bowl campaign, Bradshaw Stain. We set this big goal, and our big goal was that we wanted to make Tide one of the biggest brands of the Super Bowl. And in order to do that, we had to have a stellar ad. We had to have strong social support. We had to have highly visible PR, which means that everyone needed to think about their work in the context of what was going to drive everyone else's as well. It wasn't going to be good enough just to have a really good ad that won USA Today ad meter. That happens to be a very common goal for most people. But when you're talking about the brand, the ad meter is only one specific metric. I mean, we've all seen the Super Bowl ads where like, oh, it's a very entertaining ad, but we can't remember the brand. Well, that's not going to make Tide the most popular brand of the Super Bowl. So what we had to do was really make sure that everything that we do is integrated in a way that elevates the brand. And in doing that, we all had to be able to be very understanding and, 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 and really in tune with what everybody had to deliver as an individual in order to deliver the brand in general. And in doing that, 
you know, we could then focus on delivering this big, big goal. And the motivation there becomes very intrinsically tied to this big goal. Because if it was just about the ad, then everybody else who is supporting the team would be like, yeah, I, I, I can do my little part in order to support the ad. But really, the people that win are the people who are creating the ad. So that becomes an I mentality. So you have to think about the big common goal, which trumps ego or an individual person's need to express the I, and really think about how and what goal is going to really intrinsically pull everybody together to deliver the we. Yeah, and I think the important thing here is we're talking about the distinction of campaign versus just ad. So the Super Bowl historically is so tied to just TV ads, right? And now there is more integration with, you know, digital, social based off of those ads, et cetera. But I think Anne's point is so critically important that when you have an ad that you're like, oh, my gosh, did you see that ad where, you know, the mm-hmm. little kid raised the garage door and he was pretending to be, I forget, Darth Vader or whatever. He unlocked the car. Unlocked the car, yeah. yeah. But then you're like, wait, what was that car brand? And that's a situation we're talking about versus if you're going to build an entire campaign, it's an integrated experience across every single touch point that starts with, did you see what Ty did at the Super Bowl? And then blah, 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 whatever those things were. And so that's what you're really striving for. And I think that's a really good example of when it works. I think, unfortunately, what often happens is that big goal is not only not identified, if it is, it's not even communicated oftentimes to the agency. And Mm -hmm. so we are instantaneously at odds with each other because Ann over at P&G is responsible for business results based on the spend that's done at the Super Bowl, where we as the agency just want to do some kick-ass work that's super cool and that everyone will remember. And so if you don't build that one big goal and hold everyone accountable, then that's where you are. I mean, that's the situation that's going to exist no matter what. And I think then the really tricky part is, is you add complexity when you bring all of those different entities together, like PR, creative agency, media agency, you know, the corporate team. And there's just so many opportunities for breakdowns very specific to egos. Whereas if you do get that highly functional team, it's the complete opposite of that. But I mean, I think even as someone who, you know, I consider myself to be a very business minded person, regardless of growing up in a creative space, it used to drive me crazy when I would say, well, what's the KPI that you client want to study, you know, or or perform against? And the clients would be like, well, I think we just have to be in the marketing space. So let's run ads. Let's, you know, do a little spend and we'll see how we do and we'll test and learn. And then the drop in the bucket never performed any results because it was never the amount that it should have been. And we just ended in this like perpetual swirl where it was like, okay, fine, let's just do another photo shoot or video shoot or fill in the blank, which for someone like me kind of caused my soul to die day after day (laughs) of having to do that kind of work with nothing to measure against. So... Yeah, and I think that's really, really important to to point out because if we had just been out to make a super cool ad, which we did, uh, it wouldn't have been enough. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have been enough. It wouldn't have made the impact that it needed to make in order to win the Super Bowl. Yes. And we were able to do that, but only because our goal was so comprehensive across everything that it was going to take in yes. order to be able to demonstrate that. But you're right. It's not always communicated. 
and it communicated in a way that everybody tangibly understands and gets. Exactly. And I think that's really, really critically important. All right. So the second one here is respect Trump's like. And this is really, really an interesting one. And it sounds nuanced, but it is not because there's a common misconception that if you have that you have to like your team members in order for the team to be functional. And that is just not true. And the reason why that's not true is because functionality in teams actually comes from respect, mm-hmm. not like. And uh, going back to my uh, my my tie dad example or the Bradshaw Stan example. And I also work tie dad too, so that was another team. Um, <laughs> but there are plenty of people I didn't personally like, but <laughs> I respected what they brought to the table. And actually, those people probably know who they are. But um, <laughs> but if I was being really honest and I was being really aligned and I was using that common goal as a filter, I would opt for somebody that is going to bring value versus somebody that I I just like and happens to be an idiot because I am all about achieving this big goal, this big common goal that's going to reflect well on everybody. And it's going to do something that is usually unprecedented, something that's usually going to create legacy, something mm-hmm. that's going to create some massive impact. And so you you don't get stuck in the fact that you actually have to like everybody. And the reason why that's so important is because when you respect somebody, you believe they bring value. And when they bring value, and and if you believe that they bring value, you're more apt to listen to what they have to say. You're more apt to take their feedback, even if it's not exactly in your swim lane. But you know that they're bringing something to the table that you need to pay attention to but it because it's going to be in pursuit of the common good. Now... What we've always so come to understand is you may not always like the way some of these people provide their value. Um, but a lot of times, if the value is really intrinsically like linked to the, the success, you're willing to overlook it. But that's not always the case. And so as a little bit of a caveat here, if there is somebody that is truly toxic to your team, you really, really do need to take attention to that and you need to really do something about that. I think case in point, um, you know, Steve Jobs, probably one of the most brilliant tech folks that that ever lived, was just so toxic to the team, had to be removed. So, you know, it, it can happen. Don't believe that, you know, your value is so in, you know, trumps any ability to have to be human and, mm-hmm. and be relatable. But just know that you don't have to like everybody in order to appreciate them as a team member and do really good things together. Yeah, and I would say from the agency point of view, I mean, big personalities and charisma and, you know, some outrageousness is just part of the creative space in general. And for me, the bigger the agency, the bigger the personalities that were there. I think, unfortunately, that that showmanship can often lead to nothing beneath that surface. And so... I think what can sometimes happen is a client falls in love with X, Y, and Z because they just really like them as a person. They're fun and they go out Mm -hmm. for drinks and I leave my corporate environment and I get to, you know, loosen my tie and kick back a few and I just really enjoy that person's company. And that's totally fine. But that is 1,000% not going to get to business results. And so for someone like me on those teams, I was always trying to stay away from the distraction of it, but then also pull things back in. And 
when you're starting out your career, you're still kind of one of the worker bees, if you will, like you're still on the hook for really good work. But if there's a distraction of like, it doesn't mean that your job's going to get any easier. It's just going to mean that there's further things you have to work against. So to the previous point of, of setting up really you know, tangible and clear goals for success, that's one thing. But the respect piece has to live above and beyond like in so many ways because it can be another disastrous thing with the team if you're like, I had dinner, we're all good. You know, they're going to approve the campaign. Don't worry, whatever you guys present, you know, and we think we're good. And then the team goes in to present the work and the client hates it. That relationship really isn't haloing in an appropriate way. And we're not given the ability to do the best work we can possibly do. So I think it's a huge point that you can like the people that are on your team or you cannot like them. There are benefits and negatives to both, but it doesn't matter. What is fundamental is respect across all teams and all team members. And I think the other side of that coin is when people try to use like as a way to avoid the more pressing issues and challenges at hand. Oh, so yes. they and, and not, we're not saying that you can't like the people that are on your team. No, no. So no. I mean it's it's a bonus if you like the people on your team and you get along really well and you know and, and and that's really important. What what we're saying is that that isn't the way to build a functional team that always delivers really good work yes. and consistently delivers really good work. And I think April's point is a really good one is that sometimes the relationship piece of it, it can kind of cloud yes, um, exactly. the ability to really um, deal and address the fundamental pieces of work because then somebody's always feeling like a... Um, you know, those guys are, you know, friends with, you know, we, you know, sometimes and, you know, especially women would call it the boys club, you yes. know, the old boys club, you know, and you're like, if you're not part of that, it, it, it you can kind of struggle and there's, it, it develops feelings of um, just kind of lack of, a little bit of lack of confidence and what's my role here and, you know, am I, you know, going to have the same amount of clout and, and so um, it's, it's, that's why it's, it's really important to really focus and, and stay fundamentally directed on what it's going to take to build respect versus necessarily everybody having to like each other. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. The third way to create highly effective function and functional uh, corporate agency teams is productive conflict trumps polite ambiguity. <laughs> I love this one. All right. April, you take this one. <laughs> yes. So... You know, we just had a whole conversation about respect, right? This is kind of the next step if you do have that respect among the team. And, you know, we've talked about kind of the agency, corporate, like everyone feels like they need to be nice and agency doesn't want to feel bad and corporate doesn't want to hurt their feelings and all of that kind of stuff. And and that's where we get to that polite ambiguity. And it really serves no one is, is really the point here. And so we like to call it productive conflict. We've also call it direct conflict, respectful debating, all of those types mm -hmm. of things. But it all means the same thing. And so when we think about getting back to what is the overall goal and then working against that goal, that automatically sets up an objectivity in response to the work when it is being presented. So 
we've talked about. You don't have to be mean and nasty. You don't have to yell at your agency. You don't have to belittle them or disrespect or anything like that. All you have to do is say, this is the thing we are trying to achieve. Does this work achieve that? And then that's what you need to debate. It's not about mm-hmm. people's feelings. It's not about, you know, whether you're going to squash creativity. It's it's not about any of those things. It's about doing the right work based on the skill sets that are coming together for the reason that they both bring different things to the table. And when they work really great together, then that team thrives. And so, I mean, I know from my point of view, you know, going back after meetings when it didn't go so well, like, did that suck? Of course. But would I take that a thousand times over feedback that wasn't given directly? I absolutely would. I'm one of those people that has no patience for 36 rounds of revisions. And what happens when you don't have that productive conflict is that's exactly where you end up. Mm -hmm. And so you end in that space where you're like, nobody knows which end is up. It's like, what was the brief in the first place? Which by the way, the brief isn't always great. So don't just say that you have a brief and you have, you know, the one thing you're working against. Oftentimes those briefs become throw everything but the kitchen sink in and we'll see what comes out of it. So a little aside there. Um, what? Yes, all the time. But in any case, I think keeping your eye on that goal. I mean, in the best types of situations that I was involved in, I mean, we would put that on the wall before the meeting started and then always come back to it, you know, and and if it felt like someone was getting defensive or feelings were getting hurt, like that was addressed right in the room. Like, hey, hey, this isn't about like, I know you love that concept. I totally appreciate that. It's a great idea. It's just not a great idea for this because of X, Y and Z. So those are interpersonal interactions, right? Those are the right ways to communicate as people every day. That is that productive conflict because that person feels they had a great idea. You're not saying it's not a great idea for something else. And then this is exactly why. And so that's the type of situation that is much less frustrating, quite frankly, but really leads to those results that Anne's talking about with the tide piece, right? Because you set out and you keep coming back to that same goal while debating along the way against that goal. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And and I think my my build would be is that inherently, especially in a corporate environment, and I'm sure it's like this in an agency environment as well, you're taught that conflict is bad. Yes. It creates bad feelings. It means that people, you know, are, you know, having disagreements. And and it means that there's people who maybe who don't like each other, back to the like thing again. And a lot of leaders get really nervous about that because they think it reflects poorly on them. But the the thing is, is that if you suppress the conflict, you're actually suppressing the diversity of thought. And that is even a more dangerous place to mm-hmm. be in because what th- th- when people are bringing up feedback or when they're bringing when they're when they're dissenting against like a common point of view. Or if there's like they really don't like one of the concepts, even if other people do. There's usually a reason behind that. Yes. If you've created a team that's built on trying to deliver the common goal. Now, you will get some jackasses in there who are just like naysayers. Mm -hmm. But if you have built everybody to be working across a common goal and that's the filter, your back, the, the back question you always ask is, well, what about what you're telling me is not helping us achieve the goal? Mm-hmm. So you have to make them articulated in a way that's constructive and productive to the conversation at hand. 
then that conflict becomes productive. Mm-hmm. If you're just letting people like, you know, crap all over work, then no, that necessarily isn't going to be productive. So what I think corporate and agency teams alike can really benefit from is being able to really embrace the fact that conflict can be good. Yes. Now, again, you have to set up the right environment for, for that. But I totally agree with you. I've been through the 36 rounds of feedback. It's the most frustrating thing ever. But I've had all my agency folks tell me the same thing that you have said, which is, yes, I do not like being told that my, you know, they don't like my work, but I hate wasting my time more. Yes, exactly. Which means, though, as an, on the agency side, you can't get all, you know, make it all personal mm-hmm. and get all upset and then go up, you know, through your management and say, so-and-so is mean to me, which has happened to me. So I say that because it's happened to me. Um, but that also could be in the way that I said it. So I, I I'll take responsibility for that. I'll just let that one lie. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, great. Okay, so then the next one um, to round out this four is the team has a supported leader. Yeah, and we let this one last on purpose because, you know, so far we've talked about what goes into the actual team that's going to be responsible for the results cross-functionally from agency to corporate. Here we're talking about who is at the helm of both of those organizations, well, the teams that are working on the work, and then what kind of support does that person have within the organization where they work? So what we mean by that is if the person at the head of the team, and I'll speak from the agency side, so when I felt like I had the support of my leaders. And yes, if something went south, I could go to them and not cry and whine and say that I had been offended. But if we ran into real issues, they would have my back. And the first inclination would be to support me and the subsequent team because that trusted relationship lived there and I didn't have to worry about them going behind my back, saying something opposite, saying something to me versus the team. You know, all these have have been realities in my experience. And Mm so that's fair. You really have to have the infrastructure within the organization so that I don't have anything as the lead of the team in the back of my mind. I'm very present in the room with my client and that team and my team because I feel supported. I'm able to support my team members. And we all are coming from the point of view of the best work for the client that we are working for without any of those politics or other things in my head and the team's head, et cetera. Um, when you don't have this, then the opposite happens. And I, and I reference that, right? So I've had everything happen over the years. I've had, you know, the client tell me everything's great and call my boss. And by the time I get back to the office, I'm getting mm-hmm. chewed out because somebody wasn't happy and that was never communicated to me. And so I'm on my heels and I don't know how to react. Or I get sent into the lion's den to present the work and the, you know, my manager wasn't happy with the work and they didn't tell me that. And so when the client calls and is unhappy, they kind of hang me out to dry. I mean, these are all negative situations of what can happen when there's those breakdowns within an organization. And honestly, You could be the best leader in the entire world, but if you feel like you're being set up to fail or you have to constantly watch your back or you don't know who's saying what when you're not in the room, you cannot be effective. So therefore, that's our fourth point here is, you know, 
making sure that as a leader, you feel like your reality and your control and your decision-making abilities are supported by whoever you work for. And an anecdote that I'll use here is um, the first time ever in my entire career when I was um, heading over to Curiosity, one of the deciding factors is my boss said she was willing to hire me even though she knew that someday I could take her job. And to me, that felt like such a confident move. Totally turned my head because I'd never heard anything like that before. But the point she was making was that she was confident enough, strong enough, and then believed in my abilities to lead the team that she saw it as a positive thing that I was going to be a very strong performer versus other instances where I felt like people were trying to thwart my success. And so I just use that as like a really salient example of someone who was an amazing boss and leader, um, but kind of had herself in check with the right amount of confidence to then bring someone in that would be maybe competitive in some situation with her. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, that is a very, very good point. Um, So back to what you were saying about when your boss, you know, um, when the client called your boss and and then your boss was like, you know, basically ripping you to shreds. If you were feeling supported, what would you rather have had your boss do in that situation? So I think the best examples from my career are when the boss, like, wasn't having it. And Mm. so they, again, strong leader, right, knew me well enough, trusted me to do the work. I had instances where a client, the only client actually that has ever fired me from a business ever in my entire career, he called my boss, didn't get the answer he wanted, called my boss's boss. And the response was the same from both of them, which is, I'm sorry, I just don't see that. We've never had that issue with April before. So I think what would behoove all of us is for the four of us to get together, have this conversation with her in the room. And then, of course, they came and talked to me separately to get kind of like what actually happened. And, you know, the the ridiculousness of the whole thing was like he didn't even have the guts to say it to me. Um, but, you know, I guess that's neither here nor there. But really, like, I felt like, okay, this organization really believes in what I do and the value that I bring so much so that that really could have jeopardized that client relationship. Now, eventually I left the team and we tried several different things. I flew down and had dinner with just him. That was excruciating. You know, all of those things. In the end, it just really was not a good fit from his point of view, um, which was fine. I mean, we were wasting more time than doing good work. And so we made the decision as an organization to put someone else in the spot. But the point is that they didn't just say like, oh, April, what did she do? Blah, blah, blah. And then I walked back in from the trip and I'm being yelled at for something that I honestly didn't do. And throw you underneath the bus to yes. a client to make sure that the we agency is still looking. Yeah. yeah. I think that is so, that is such a fantastic story because I've had it happen to me on the other side. Yeah. Um, and I I think, th- you know, the, um, the point to be made here is that this is not a traditional model. Right. Um, and it's, it's a, it, frankly, it's a, it's a more challenging model to work underneath. Totally. But you have to want the results enough that you're willing to believe in in working the model but it does take a supported leader in order to go do that otherwise their leader's only going to be worried about me yes you know i what well how is this going to impact me am, am i going to be thrown underneath the bus mm-hmm. if, if something bad happens you know 
But what you do need to do, and we're going to get into this, is like, you can't live in a bubble either, no, right? You know, no, no. And so we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think that's just really important to say is that this is not like you know the Wild West where you get to act out any way you want, you know. And 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 but it it, it does mean that um, you know, you have to have leaders that are or your the leaders have to have managers who are willing to recognize the pursuit of what the team is trying to achieve and be able to honor that as well. And I mean, obviously, we've been through this a lot in our you know combined thirty five years. It's not necessarily easy to implement and instill. <laughs> if if you guys want our help in doing it, it's definitely something that we do. We do this a lot for a lot of our clients, and we can take the two sides and we merge them very nicely together in order to create understanding from both sides in order to create the infrastructure in order to support this kind of a team environment. So um, you know, feel free to to hit us up on on our website for that. Yeah, clearly we love this topic. So. Yeah, it's definitely one that we are very passionate about. <laughs> are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right, so those are the four ways to create a highly functional corporate agency team. For the next section that we do, we're going to go in, into the trenches, and this is going to be very insightful because we're <laughs> going to dig deep into uh, a lot of our own personal experiences as we address some of the most common questions you guys uh, have with regards to how to really like put this into practice. So um, that's what our in the trenches questions are going to be focused on. So we'll start with the first one. I'm going to let April take this one. So April. Yeah, so you guys talk a lot about how you come from the opposite sides of the marketing tracks. What exactly do you mean by this, and how does it impact getting to good work? So I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about actually this dynamic throughout the course of the conversation, but I think to put a really fine point on it, we're coming from opposite sides of the tracks because we literally have different fundamental intentions, motivations, and even reward systems within the organizations where we work. And you've heard us talk about the culture of agency versus corporate is very different, which also means the expectations of you as an employee are different. So corporate teams get rewarded for business results. Agencies get rewarded for doing really cool, exciting work that wins industry awards. And I might be being a little tongue-in-cheek there, right? Like, that's not the only thing. It's a big thing. But it is a, a big, big thing. thing. Um, and so what looks like success is automatically different from the very beginning. So this is why you need that big common goal that we've already talked about. It helps unite the team. It helps bring a sense of objectivity. It gives you evaluation metrics that everybody can come back to. If you don't do this, you will literally be speaking different languages from the very beginning, which is why you have agencies that when you as the corporate team think even you're being clear, they hear something totally different than what you're saying. Yeah, and I think it it, it allows you to have an and, and because I I think that was it's it's been a 
big point of discussion a lot about what you're trying to achieve in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is it is clear. And, you, and yes, is, is it a simplification? Yes. But a lot of times, as we've said before, is that we'll, the, and I know on the corporate side, we'll try to play both sides of the track, right? Yeah. Like, so we'll say, yes, we wanted to um, to build a business, but we want super cool, exciting work. Yes. Right? Exactly. And so, my but, favorite feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, how do you merge the two? Well, you guys are clever enough. You guys will figure a way uh-huh. to, measure, you know, the, to, to merge the two, right? But that big, like, creative, like, you know, work that you do, it has to have our tagline. Mm-hmm. It has to use, like, all of our brand principles. It has to be in this context of how we do all everything else. But you have all the other freedoms, right? You know? And so that's a, a thing to kind of keep in mind, too, because I, I just remember going back and forth on that so many times as well, where the agency does bring really cool, exciting work, but even though the corporate team says that's what they want, they really don't want it because at the end of the day, they're responsible for delivering business results. And if it's too far away from what is comfortable, the ability to be able to justify it becomes harder. Mm -hmm. So you have to really get on the same page about like, okay, what do you really mean by that? Where is my flexibility? What am I allowed to tweak? Am I, you know, am I allowed to take the Tide logo and make a different shape out of it? You know, we've had that conversation a ton. You know, what is like inside and what's outside the parameters? So I I think that's a, a really good point is that a lot of times, even if you're saying the same words, you're not talking to the same thing. So you have to find a way to make sure that everybody's envisioning the same thing. And I would say nothing kills the agency's energy, excitement, you know, more than when we feel like a bait and switch has been pulled on us. Because when a client says we want big and exciting work to the point you just made, it's like, oh, guardrails gone. We can, you know, and we can create this whole big experience that probably will cost a million dollars, but who cares? Because they want the big impactful ideas, right? And then, you know, fast forward 36 rounds and we're at like a print ad with the tagline and maybe a clever headline that's going to, you know, maybe pique someone's interest and make them chuckle or smile. And it's like, how do we go from here to here? And so I think mm-hmm. that's another thing that's just tough when you're on the agency side because unleashing creative means very different things. And it means very different things across clients. And we would do so many exercises trying to get to, is this a revolutionary change or is this an evolutionary change? And here's your scale of one to 10. And this room of clients needs to align on, you know, with their little sticky on the same number. And then we'll say what that is with the power power dots. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Hated power dotting. (laughs) But there's, because we don't, speak the same language and we don't have the same experiences, it does make it really hard to define that. And then when you also have different definitions across both teams based on role and hierarchy and experience and all those types of things, it it just can become a mess pretty quickly. So I think, therefore, the point of like, let's really understand what we're talking about. And sometimes those conversations are really painful, but some of the most productive ones I've had get to the, you know, level of like, Okay, what are the non-negotiables? You want me to put mm-hmm. all of your six brand elements, your tagline, your logo. We have a print ad that's an eight by ten sheet. That leaves us, you know, forty-eight point headline. Are we cool? And yeah. That's it. And so, you yeah, know, it is what it is in that case. I think that's yes, that is very fair. 
All right. The second end of Torrance's question, I am one of those leaders who fears conflict. You're not alone, by the way. How do I embrace it and facilitate it? Abra, I'll let you start on this one because there's there's several different aspects of this. So we're going to we're going to kind of tag team this one, but I'll let you start. Yeah. So five primary practices that we've kind of boiled down from our experience. Uh, the first one is filter all feedback through the shared common goal. So we've talked about this already, right? Makes it less personal. It's not about right and wrong. It's about what's going to deliver the most impact. You know, you can have that productive conflict where you're debating back and forth, but you're really asking, you know, what about this idea really hits home or delivers on that common goal? You're not talking about, I love it, I hate it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, You're taking the emotion down a notch. You're getting everybody focused. And even if you're a leader that doesn't like conflict, this can set you up in the best way to manage it as it comes up. Because I think conflict automatically people think, it's going to get really ugly. Mm-hmm. And that's not the definition we're talking about here. We're talking about like debating to get to the right answer versus lashing out, which will definitely set this type of leader up for success. Yep. I agree with that one. And using a filtering, like if it's just a rubric or something like yes. that, so that everybody's on the same page for how you're evaluating things, because we find that people evaluate things very differently and according to their own set of uh, filters. Um. The second one would be establish rules of engagement and make sure everyone practices them, especially you. And this is because the rules establish clear guidelines and expectations for everyone. Kind of what I just said about the rubric or the filter when you're evaluating work, which is what I always did, just so everybody was clear where I was coming from. But this is a little bit in the kind of the dynamics of the team itself. So if conflict arises, you can always defer back to the rules. So for example, you may have a rule that People can't just like shoot down everybody's ideas if they can't offer a good one or aren't willing to take mm-hmm. responsibility for going and finding a better one. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's just one example of like how to avoid like somebody just being a naysayer about everything or just being, you know, that bad apple in, in the bunch. But it also means that you need to practice what you preach. So, for example, you know, you've heard me in April say that good ideas can come from anywhere. And we used to say this all the time in the corporate world. But not exactly sure we practice what we preached. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you do believe good ideas can come from everywhere, you better be listening to everybody's ideas. You better be like, doesn't matter where they come from. You better be listening to them and not trying to then funnel them through a specific uh, you know, contrived process that you can't hear all of the ideas. And I'm going to jump in here because this is something that we constantly made fun of after we would leave, especially P&G meetings, which was to that point, it would be like, all right, time to give feedback. And the highest level person in the room would look at the most junior person level at the in the room, call them out and say, what do you think, Brad? Or whoever it was. <laughs> it always started that way. ABS and I'm started. like, what in the world? That is the meanest thing you can possibly do <laughs> to someone. But to the point you just made, it's like, oh, come on. How in the world is that productive from anybody's point of view? But it was inevitable every time. Oh, yeah. That's just how it goes. Well, one, it was like <laughs> it's, it's either to make the, uh, you know, the rest of the people sound smart. I'd be like, well, that was a good idea. But, you know, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we used to have some fun conversations at, you know, the poor ABM's expenses. But it was kind of like a rite of passage. You know, you had to kind of like go first and eventually you got to just like be at the the head and be able then to um, claim everybody else's thoughts as your own. 
such a bad way to do it. <laughs> well, you know, but the other way about it though is if the if the if the lead person started if the if the if the one with that most seniority started, everybody would feel very uncomfortable dissenting with that opinion too. So well, and I don't I don't disagree with that, but it's just like I, I mean. My God, I think it just scarred some of this poor It probably did. <laughs> um, yeah, it probably did. All right. The third one we have here. Listen and demonstrate you heard both sides. So this kind of places you in the position to be a bit of a mediator, which I think for this type of leader that doesn't like to jump in and like perform or, you know, participate in the conflict this is where you can get credit for kind of alleviating the bad energy or aggression in the room. So you play a little bit of a referee, you know, someone starts to get upset, you can, you know, calm them down. I heard you say this. I understand that you like this idea. However, it seems like, you know, client feels like we're not delivering as strongly mm -hmm. with this concept against X, Y, and Z. Therefore, they seem to be leaning this way. Did I hear that appropriately? And that can help you get to, well, better, clearer results for sure from the conversation. But it also then allows you to have a role that really isn't about having to participate or, you know, get all worked up in the conflict. You can really get rid of it, which is a great role for this type of leader to play. Yeah. And that and that's the the, the bad conflict because I think, yeah you know, when, when people are, are, you know, especially passionate about a specific idea, again, that's usually coming from a place of, you know, understanding or knowledge or, you know, just really desperate trying to get their idea across, yeah. it always escalates if they don't feel like they're being listened to. Yes, exactly. It always escalates. Always. So being able to demonstrate that you've heard somebody in even saying, you know, I hear you, we're going to go a different way, but thank you, you know, for yeah. expressing your point of view, but know that I heard you and like giving them enough like um, re reiteration back of what they had said so they could feel heard. They might not like the outcome, but at least they feel like, you know, they were heard. Yes, exactly. Um, the next one is take ownership for the decision. So this is a pick one for a leader. Once you've heard both sides and considered all of the above, you need to make a decision. You need to own it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is when somebody like doesn't like conflict, they also have a really hard time making decisions. Yes. Right? Because they're afraid they're going to make somebody mad. Um, and they're going to have to deal with the the repercussions of that or they're afraid of looking unpopular or, you know, it, it, it definitely comes back to being a specific reflection of themselves. And, you know, we talk a lot about personal brand and their personal brand. So sometimes that's in conflict. But you have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to you can definitely share your rationale for so everyone understands why you made a decision and Above and beyond that, regardless of whichever way the outcome comes, you need to own that as well. Mm -hmm. So a good leader always shares the success and owns the failures. Yes. I mean, that's just always how it goes. That's how you get the respect, the integrity, because ultimately you need to make the decision. If you're going to continue to defer the decision because you don't want to like deal in the conflict, because I've had that a lot too, where people are trying to like keep on too many options, mm -hmm. like, or, or they want to keep everything open. It's like, no, if you don't like that. You know, or if it's like in the top, you know, in the lower bottom or, you know, if it's, you know, regardless of what we're talking about, if that doesn't seem like it's going to come to fruition because it's not going to deliver against a common goal, just cut it out yes. and move on. Yes. You know, as opposed to like, you know, being able to like try to keep as many options open so you don't piss anybody off. Mm -hmm. It's like it's such a detrimental uh, uh, practice to being able to deliver uh, really good work. And that's definitely dysfunctional. 
Yeah. And this one to me, I mean, I just have no use for this kind of behavior when it's, you know, when the decision isn't owned and, you know, the leader kind of is wishy-washy because I think anyone that works for that person then feels like, they can't do their best work because they're distracted by the fact that they're not sure how things are going to go or that something could be taken back or someone's going to flip a switch. And I think, you know, even a leader with good intention, I think to Anne's point about knowing your personal brand, it's like you got to know that about yourself and manage it yourself. You mm -hmm. can't push that down on other members of the team because nothing will kill a team so fast. But I mean, you won't get any of the results you're looking for because your people are just constantly left in this limbo of not being sure what's going to happen next because they don't feel like they can count on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. All right. And the fifth and final of how to deal with conflict if you're a leader that does not love conflict is make it a regular practice. So – um, at Curiosity, I think my team and, and hopefully all of them listening will say, yes, this is true. But I feel like we got to a really good place where feedback was so instantaneous and fluid and so unemotionally driven that we gave it all the time. And I think it was built from the very foundation of the team and the respect that we had for each other. I mean, we generally liked each other and had a good time too, I will say. Um, but I mean, we could get in a room and it didn't matter that I was the leader and, you know, they worked for me or that we had a super junior person in the room. If anybody had feedback to give, they were supposed to give that feedback. The only time you ever got in trouble is if you withheld feedback in a room and then you went and had another conversation with someone else. So oh, yeah. we really tried to have open and honest communication, very timely. That way no one really felt like they were ever in trouble. Nothing ever blew up. We never got to the point where someone was too scared to tell us about a mistake. I was never caught off guard as a leader of the team. And I just said, guys, you know what? I don't have all the answers I've put this team together because you guys are better at some things than I am and vice versa. And so you're not going to hurt my feelings. If it's about the work, it, you know, or even if it's about my behavior, I quite frankly don't care. It starts with me. I will own those mistakes, like you said, Anne. Um, I always was big about promoting the team. And I think we just got to like such a nice flow where no one ever felt fearful when we were in those rooms or like they couldn't say what they wanted to say. And so it was literally on the table, left on the table. We hashed it out. We got to quick mm -hmm. decisions. It was always better work. And the team, I think, felt very proud and empowered because they were free to just go do their jobs and just make sure that I was never surprised. That was mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. so. That's a really good point. Third in the trenches question. I try to set big goals, but people still get stuck in their roles and just live within their silo. How do I get them to break out of it? <laughs> this goes back to what I was saying about how to really motivate behind a big common goal. And what you really need to do behind that big common goal is you need to restructure the expectation of each role and how success will be measured. So we've been talking a lot about creative. So let me just use that example here for a, sep for a second. So oftentimes, and I'm sure April could attest to this, we call the person who def does the creative, the creative di director, right? Mm -hmm. The creative director. And they have a creative team. And that is how, in a traditional corporate agency model, that you would operate. And this person would be rewarded for coming up with a creative idea, mm -hmm. right? 
And if this idea didn't originate from the person's team, the value of the creative director is somehow diminished. And actually, then the agency's value is called into question. And so it becomes a very exclusive um, effort to basically come up with whatever the creative idea is. So that fundamentally is a little bit of an issue because creativity shouldn't be limited to just a few people, mm-hmm. right? So in a functional team, what I we've seen happen is that that role is, de- is actually redefined and that creative director is in charge of facilitating the creative development mm-hmm. of the team, right? And so the reward becomes being able to then develop the big creative idea, regardless of where it came from. And they're rewarded and they're recognized for being able to facilitate a -hmm. process. Not necessarily that the idea has to come from this one body or these like group of bodies that have somehow been anointed as the creatives, right? Now, that all being said, you also have to be respectful of the fact that if the idea did not come from the creative director, that does not diminish their ability as a creative. It, because it's really their eye, their training, their knowledge, their expertise that helps them to facilitate a creative process. That is what we've seen work really, really well in the, the functional teams that we've been part of that's delivered really, really good work. That's a common practice. And really what that expands to is that it, it, well, it said simply, like functional teams reinforce and reward the behavior that's going to lead to the best possible outcome against a common goal. But again, as we were talking about supported leaders, this has to start from the top. It has to be the leader. It has to be the management of the leader that's going to say, yeah, this is what we're going to embrace in the team or else the whole I thing becomes, again, a really big issue and you lose the we. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would just add that it, it's just too much pressure pressure to place on one person. Mm-hmm. Whether they want the pressure or not, whether they you know want to be the big cheese and all of that kind of stuff, it is impossible for one creative director, especially given like the amount of clients and accounts and size and speed with which, you know, especially if everybody wants to do a Super Bowl ad or whatever the case might be, I think it just puts undue pressure on that person. And so they feel a sense of just being alone. And then that's where I think they start to like be like, okay, it has to be just my idea, right? And that becomes like the tunnel vision focus. Whereas even within the agency, the most successful teams I've been a part of are cross-functional in nature beyond just creative. So Mm -hmm. I served role as strategist many times throughout my career. And, um, you know, at Interbrand, we had where we'd have a strategist paired with a creative paired with an account person. And then there'd be other people on the team, but they would be kind of like the tripod of responsibility for what was happening with the client. One that worked best was when everybody's egos were checked at the door, when we were all super invested in doing the best work for the client based on the goal that the client was trying to achieve. And some of the best and most fun and exciting work I've ever done was within 
those little kind of like tripod teams because we were coming from very different places. And then we also had each other's backs in the meetings with the rest of the team. So it wasn't like me strategist having to push back on said creative because I was trying to communicate that they had missed the point of some of the strategy. It was like, no, the creative that was my peer on the team had my back and was able to say, now let's listen because what April's saying is important. When we think about the consumer, they actually want this. I think she's right. We didn't necessarily hit it. Or account person being there to be the client in the room to say, like, you guys are getting all jazzed about this one idea. But remember, they said that they really need it to be clear and focused on this thing. And it's not. And because we built respect as the team of three representing cross-functionally the different teams within the organization, then we all kind of managed the business and the project. Mm -hmm. And then all of the team members learn to respect us equally as opposed to just looking to one creative director to make all the decisions and discounting the rest. So, yeah, I think it I think that's great. I think that's a fantastic example because I've seen the same thing work really really well. And even when the team is with people who are outside the agency too, yes. when it's when yes. it's incorporating some of the corporate team members mm-hmm. and so so everybody's working very, you know, closely together because what happens then is that stuff doesn't get keep getting thrown over the wall where somebody goes off and works for two two weeks on an mm-hmm. idea comes back with a bunch of hours. ideas yep. and then they decide well no I you know those aren't right ones and but if they had known what that feedback was you know 13 days ago yep. they could have pivoted right away but it tends to be very protective then it also tends to become very personal when yes. you operate that way because then it becomes like oh you don't like my work right. versus, oh, we together have not nailed it yet. Yep. So we together need to kind of like rethink this through. So it, it does share some of that like creative like energy that allows the brains to kind of work together a little bit more harmoniously to kind of create higher level work for sure. Well, and I think that brings up, you know, a kind of another point, which is I think there's a lot of pressure on the agency to bring perfect work to the clients yeah. versus work that's in progress. Um So to the point of having the client in the room, I mean, you know, again, most successful teams I was on, we figured out the best approach to doing that for each individual client and set the expectation at the beginning that this wasn't going to be some big reveal. Aha, look at all the wonderful things we did that you're going to not like Mm -hmm. because we forgot what we were doing, you know, at the goal or we never said it or the brief had a million words in it or whatever the things were. Right. And so. We did it in a variety of ways. Sometimes it was like said client actually is a really good key team member to round out that group of three. We'd plop in a client and we would work collaboratively together. And that works sometimes. Sometimes it was client can't quite participate or doesn't feel comfortable in the creative process when we're like making the sausage or whatever those stupid expressions are. <laughs> but um, but is willing to come in at key points as we're, you know, kind of getting the ideas off the ground to say, uh, I really like these two, this one, I think you could maybe work out, but I'm lukewarm and this one's definitely out. So we were building the work together in a way that didn't just put us back in some silo or said creative director in some mm-hmm. silo to come back with ideas after two weeks, which how can anyone remember the initial briefing conversation to a T at that point? And so I think the iterative iterative nature of the process versus getting rid of that madman, you know, show up, slap down that best ad and call Pick it a one. day and have drinks, right? And then they make all the money or whatever. It, it's not like that. And because business 
and consumers and technology and all these things have changed, it's just a very different space. And so I think leaving some of those kinds of expectations behind and being willing to change with the times and then, you know, allow it to be a team effort sets the right kind of stage and cadence and and way of communicating that takes the pressure off of everyone to just get to the right work. And it, de- and it creates a champion on the other side exactly. to some extent, too. Yeah. As long as you don't get accused for over-filtering the work, which I happen to get accused and of, too. Yes, that, yes. It's like, well, if we had just shown, you know, the management all these ideas, you know, and I'm like, well, then do that, you know? And so so you have to really commit to the yes. process and have everybody be very clear. It goes back to the rules of engagement yes. of how you're going to operate and then make sure that everybody is on board with that and they operate by the rules of engagement. Yes, All right, number four, how do I get my management on board with this? And we alluded to this before, and I'm just going to, uh, again, uh, make a couple of fine points on this, is that you have to share the risk, okay? So you have to set up your operating principles just like Anybody else would done just heard me allude again back to the fact of, you know, when we were talking about conflict and the rules of engagement, but these are your broader operating principles of how your team is going to operate. And it's, it could go from those principles to, um, you know, broader based principles about like what we were just talking about, about the roles of everybody. So that has to really be established. And then you want to align your management to that operating agreement and operating principles. And you then want to be very proactive in sharing with them what's going on. Like we said, do not go into a bubble. That's going to be like the worst thing you're going to do because then you're going to look rogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's nothing like looking rogue because then everybody starts asking questions and there's only so much tension that that can take before the bubble bursts and then the whole thing falls apart. And management does not like to look bad. Mm-hmm. So they like being part of things that look feel very progressive and that they're changing, you know, the the, the world almost, I'd say, you know, I'm making a very general statement, you know, and they're changing kind of like the landscape of how the company does business. But you have to be, you know, be keep them in the loop and establish regular check-ins, um, especially if you're going to operate somewhat controversial. Like we said, this is not, you know, generally the traditional way of operating, and if something happens, you know, in that and you think that it might go out and come back and maybe, you know, somebody's going to slip with regards to some of your operating principles, make sure they know that, too. Um, and if your management is still uncomfortable about it, you know, just ask them for a trial period. It's like I use a reference all the time about putting on a coat. You can always try on a coat. and If you don't like it, you could take it off. But, you know, weigh the risk versus reward and see, you know, what the upside is versus the downside. And, you know, just put in a little bit of a trial period and see. And if it doesn't work, you can always revert back to, you know, the other way. But, um, you know, this takes a, um, a leader who's willing to lean in and, you know, be a little bit brave in, 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 in establishing this and really wants to see fantastic work come to fruition and is just not satisfied with the, the general mediocre work. Yes. And I, I think for me, um, you know, I've mentioned before that, like, the first – call it eight to 10 years of my career was more in the brand building space. And then when I got to Curiosity, they were more, you know, advertising focused, which meant I had done all this strategy work. And what I really wanted to do and what they wanted me to do was help build that thread so that we weren't starting a campaign at just the campaign mark. We were backing it up to be really thoughtful and pragmatic about what worked best for the brand. And so exactly what just what Ann just said is what I would do because I think automatically I was just different than everybody else. And I was like one of the first Mm -hmm. people that had been hired 
in a while, I was the first person that kind of was at this level coming in and trying to build like a second managerial level. And and so for a lot of reasons, I think my feedback was always kind of met with like a not so sure about that at first because it was brand new. And so I would do exactly what you said, which was I started going to the weekly management team meetings. I'd always have my, like, this is mm-hmm. what I said I was going to do last time. This is what we did. Um, if anything it came up in the meantime, it was shared right away. But, you know, I would go with my big, bold ideas knowing that I was going to have to probably pull back based on especially the personalities in the room, et cetera. I was new. You know, how fast could I push? How much would they trust me? And so I think over time, it's having the patience to chip away because you really believe there's a better way. Uh, But knowing that, like, you can't go in there and just, like, you know, say, okay, I'm going to burn everything that's been here and now (laughs) this is my way and how we're going to do it. You have to kind of, like bring everybody along with you and let them get to know you and trust you so that then you have all of that support Mm -hmm. when you're in that room. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. The last one. April, I'll let you take this one. What are the biggest watchouts when trying to lead or operate within a functional team? We've talked about this. It's all about respect. People have to feel like it's a safe place. They have to feel like they're they're trusted. They have to trust you. They have to know that what they say to you is going to be kept in confidence. Mm-hmm. They have to know that you're going to be there. You're going to support them. You're going to be the person to take the blame or support their you know wins and put them out there. All of those things are so important. You have to practice what you preach. And it also means you have to be in touch. So like, you know, we talked about already creating a functional team. It's about continuous points of contact. It's not like, hey, we're going to meet once a month for an hour. We're going to go to lunch. We're going to have a discussion. And that's your time with me. It can't be like that. You have to be there regularly, be accessible, create the proper ways to get in touch and also spend regular time, whatever that looks like. For me as a manager, it was one hour every week with my three direct reports and then that trickled down to theirs. That time was preserved. No matter how busy you were, you had that meeting. Like Those types of practices because those people have the pulse on the organization. The higher you rise in the ranks, it just is what it is. You're not in touch with the day-to-day work. You're not in touch with the you know brand new people that are hired and what that's doing to the culture. So you have to rely on the people that report to you and the people that report to them to be able to feel comfortable to bring issues to you, which then usually means you get them before they've exploded and now everything is on fire and you can address them as need be. But it's all about respect, trust, staying in touch regularly. Yes, I would say the, the times I've seen a functional team break down the most is when the leader loses their integrity. Oh gosh! If yes. you can't trust your leader to maintain the the operating principles, the rules of engagement, and they operate outside of yep. their integrity, and they don't acknowledge it, and they, I mean, you can make mistakes. So I'm not saying you have to be perfect. Yep. You can make mistakes, but don't acknowledge it and bring it back to the team and address it. Or they go like off on a side and they start kind of creating some of these relational uh-huh. things that we talked about that like then it, it feels like it's operating outside of the team or they somehow. Yeah, those are the biggest ways of like destroying a functional team right down to the core, because as you said, April, it's maintained on respect. If you don't have the respect, there's not going to be any trust. If you don't have the trust, you're not going to be able to create a safe space. And then this whole thing falls apart. And then you just get to create all the work that you've been creating before and, you know. Start over. You start over. Or not. Yeah. And, yeah. So 
Well, and I think the other uh, other point there is like be very real about what you control and what you can't. That's a really good point. Because, I mean, you know, I could pretty much get people promoted as I wanted, but I could not control the money that was going to come with that given the financials. Because Mm -hmm. at agencies, we just aren't as good at at building like here's the tiers and here's who makes what. You know, it just – it's not corporate doctrine. And so – a promotion one year might be a 3% increase. The next year it might be 10. It just depends kind of like how the agency did the spotlight on the team. I mean, there's just so many variables and they tend to be very subjective. So if we were working toward promotion, I was always very clear that I will get you the promotion. I may not get you the money that you expect. And that was set from the beginning. So therefore they knew that I would fight, but that was not my bucket of money. So at that, you know, point in time, it was like, okay, so now I know it wasn't me promising the world and coming back and being like, sorry, I couldn't get it for you. It was honest from the start. I think that is a super critical point because I think that is clear across the board is that you have to be humble Mm -hmm. enough to say, hey, this isn't within my pay grade or it's not within my pay grade. And if there is an unpopular decision that's made that's outside the team, it's being able then to rally the team back and not letting the team just kind of like fall apart in their misery of like not getting their way. So you have to be able to rebound. You have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to bring everybody back together. Yep. Um, and it, it, it refocus on whatever now is, um, if it's an altered common goal, uh-huh. right? So, yes. um, and, and sometimes it's just elements of that goal that are like, that don't come to fruition the way that you expect them. That's just life. Yes. So you have to kind of maintain that, um, that perspective at, at all times. I think that's really important. Yep. So for our third and final section, we like to talk about a brand or a business that we feel exemplifies or not, in some cases, the topic of the day, which is about uh, creating highly functional corporate agency teams. And this one takes a little bit of a, a different angle because this one's more of a internal team. But um, I wanted to highlight Ray Dalio, who is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest head fund. Now, I will say that I've never worked at Bridgewater, nor I've I met Ray personally, but I have read his book, Principles. I listened to him on many podcasts, and there's plenty of people who have replicated his model with a lot of success. So I feel somewhat capable of being able to talk and apply this this idea, but I wanted to just be upfront that I have, I've never met Ray, although I'd love to. Um, but if you know anything about Ray, you would know that he practices extreme candor. That's part of his book of, on, on Principles. And this is the key principle, actually, candor, that defines the culture at Bridgewater. To the point that when he was not being the leader that his people needed him to be, they called him out on it. And they told him that it was impacting the morale of the team. And he actually listened. He sought out the feedback. He changed his behavior. And he asked others actually to hold him accountable. And why does he do this? Because he knows that the success of Bridgewater is bigger than him. That is his common goal. His common goal is making sure that Bridgewater is the the foundational hedge fund. It's it's what is like everybody else is marking against uh, in, in that industry, and that is more important than his ego. And he also realized that he does not need to be the smartest person in the room in order for the uh, the, the hedge fund to actually prosper. And if he's not being conducive, build that and and, and really align against that common goal, he wanted people to call him out on it. 
because he's actually impeding that process. And so the the, the candor comes from a um, the desire to actually have a, you know in his case it's very extreme feedback um, so very direct very extreme feedback which is that how he embraces conflict above ambiguity that polite ambiguity he he, he fosters that he encourages that and that's kind of funny because like I can't imagine really a you know too many places that has more conflict probably than a hedge fund. Yes, I mean I, I the amount of like smart people it takes to actually analyze the whole industry and come up with what exactly is going to be a part of that. I mean, the clash of expertise has got to be very impressive, and it would be extremely dysfunctional if there was no respect. That whole thing would just crumble if there wasn't an element of respect. So him as a leader is supporting the team. Mm -hmm. He also happens to be the supported leader, but he has people who are keeping him accountable Mm -hmm. for his behaviors. But then also he's very just bluntly, like relentlessly hires in order to really fulfill that culture. So he basically says, and people who practice this have done said the same thing, if you can't handle this culture, mm-hmm. this is not the place for you, mm-hmm. right? And so this is a very extreme example of a, of a functional team, but his book is very insightful. I, I encourage it, um, everybody to read it um, because it does provide a perspective that's so like, in everything that we just have articulated, um, but in a slightly different industry. So I think it brings uh, some some interesting insight. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, to Ian's point, talk about high intensity. It doesn't mm-hmm. get any more intense than this. And so I think finding that nuanced behavior where you're giving the feedback, but you're still fueling the energy of the team and you have that many smart, capable people all in one place, like it has to be a constant recalibration. And I think it's super yeah. impressive that he didn't just decide, you know what, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, you're going to do it my way. He actually embraces the fact that it has to be managed kind of on all sides, especially given the fact that they're handling so much money. Um mm-hmm. And so the, the fact that he can lean into that and also know that, like, he can get better, be better, et cetera, because of the people he's surrounded by. I think it's admirable. I totally agree. And to admit and be vulnerable enough to say that you're the problem. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I, I totally admire that. And that takes a really strong person. All right. So a little bit longer than we usually go, but this is such a rich topic. We probably could have talked another full episode. We might do that in the future. But In the meantime, go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here, and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover, which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend, and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.